You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. I'm Kyle Worley, and today I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about the time that three wise men walked into a barn in Bethlehem. Or maybe it wasn't three wise men. Or maybe they were really magi and they weren't wise men. And maybe the shepherds were there, or maybe they weren't there. And maybe it was on December 25th, or maybe it wasn't on December 25th. Really what we're going to be looking at is the birth narrative of Jesus Christ in Matthew. And we'll be looking at Luke and John as well and pulling that in as source material. And what we want to consider is there are some ways that the nativity story, the narrative around Jesus's birth have maybe been expanded beyond what the story in scripture actually allows for. We've built on things on top of it where they're not actually there, or maybe they're different than what we've thought. But when we actually begin to look at the birth narrative that we find in Matthew and Luke, what we see is something truly profound that the Lord of all creation, the Son of God, has taken on human flesh in the person of Jesus. And so I hope that you enjoy the discussion as we explore the birth narrative of Jesus in the gospel. Okay, Jim, single biggest misconception about the birth story of Jesus, go. Kind of hard to narrow it down to one, but I'm going to go with Jesus was born on December 25th. Of course he was born. We're going to keep the Christ and Christmas in this room, Jen. Are you about to tell me that you are part of this liberal group that wants to take the Christ out of Christmas? It sounds like you're saying that. That's a whole other podcast. Okay. (laughs) No, for real though. Why would why what why couldn't he have been born on December twenty fifth? What what is what are we doing on December twenty fifth? Why is that important if it's not the birth of Christ? I mean, I guess he could have been born on December twenty fifth. the The text doesn't say when he was born, what time of year it was, but um, yeah. So, and it, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where do we even need to nail that down in order to appreciate what the story is telling us in the text? And I think that's a thing that people kind of get wrapped up in mean, this whole discussion we're going to have about um, this particular scene in scripture is a lot of the things that we cling to and feel like we need to hang on to in order to understand the story of Jesus' birth are actually not even adding anything to our understanding of what happened and in some cases may even be distracting from it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. When we're when I know we've talked about biblical literacy a lot, and we're going to keep talking. We're going to try to not say it all the time. <laughs> yeah, but we'll just find other ways to say it, mm-hmm. right? Like Bible literacy, knowing the Bible, knowing what the Bible says. A Bible's lot. important. Bible <laughs> right. matters. Knowing faith, <laughs> nailed it. Um, but when we're when we're thinking about biblical illiteracy, I think sometimes we only talk about biblical illiteracy as if, well, people just haven't read their Bibles or people just don't know their Bibles. And that's a huge part of the equation. But some of this has been the work of inadvertent Christian storytelling, you might say, mm-hmm. building myths around these portions of scripture. We see it with the end times all the time. We see it in the birth narrative of Jesus uh, around Christmas every year, thinking about the nativity story and all the Christmas carols we sing. They had this real big story, but then when you go look at the text, you're kind of like, hey, where are all those details? Right. Right. 
Well, and sometimes it's even hard to do that because you're just assuming that they're there. You're just not in that chapter. Exactly. Like you can just assume, well, that detail's somewhere else where I'm not reading right now. Well, like I grew up in churches where the Christmas Eve service was reading through the narrative, you know, in parts. And yet I still moved into young adulthood with with some of these misconceptions myself because that's right. You just kind of think, oh, it's there somewhere, right? right? And most of us, and this is actually instructive for us as teachers, I think most of us have learned more about the birth of Christ from a nativity scene that sat on a shelf in our houses yeah. than from the actual words of scripture. Right. Like I remember reading, uh, even just as we were prepping for this show again, I was thinking through the Matthew accounts in uh, Matthew one and two. And, um, I was looking at, I was going, well, where are the shepherds and the angels? I'm like, <laughs> why aren't they there? Where, where are the shepherds? They're a big part of this story. I've seen them in every nativity. And they're like, well, Matthew didn't even mention the shepherds and the angels. And then you go over to Luke. Wait, what? Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> then you go over to Luke and you're like, Luke, where are those magi at, man? Where are those wise men at? Well, our nativity set that we were given. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and John's like, what? What? What's going on? The nativity set that we were given um, when we had little kids, you know, so they could move the little pieces around all during Advent. uh, The the figures were even labeled. Like the three wise men were Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar. Right. Um, That ain't in there, people. (laughs) You know, so there was just mass confusion sitting in this one little barn on a a shelf (laughs) in a corner of my room. So somewhere... Right now, somebody's in their car listening to this and their world's being exploded. Yeah. Because yeah. like, wait, it's not there. So what What would we tell them? Like what What next step should they have is thinking, oh my gosh, maybe they're right. I need to go reread my Bible. Well, first of all, I would just like to reassure you that these are probably many of the least egregious sins <laughs> committed against any text in scripture. Right. So you can exhale a little bit. Um, you can still get the main point of the story, even if... You, you think, think Balthazar was there? Right, right, right. Maybe um, not that far. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there is something to be said for... It, it's one thing to to enjoy uh, the traditions around the holiday. It's another thing to understand what what the scripture actually has to say. And, and, and then you can know how much emphasis to give where. You know, we have a lot of concern at Christmas around Santa, which many Christians would say is just Satan spelled only slightly differently. Yeah. Um, but, but here again is an opportunity to parse between what is tradition and what is uh, just in the text. And then, then you can properly value them in the way that you observe. Yes, absolutely. Listen, I love hot cocoa. I love all the Christmas carols. I love all of that stuff. But I think we do ourselves a disservice if we don't make the point of the gospel accounts of the birth of Jesus the point the of what point, we're right. doing. Because we start to get kind of caught up in the, the myth of it all. The season. The season of it all. So I think a great example of this is we talk about the inn and the stable. Like every nativity you've ever seen is this what looks like a barn. And when we read into you know Matthew or when we look at the Luke account, because Matthew doesn't even really mention the inn. Luke mentions an inn. Matthew mentions that the magi came and saw them in a house, right? Like in a room. Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at this, I think we do ourselves a disservice if we look at this and go, okay, yeah, but it was it was probably a barn. It's probably like what we're thinking about with animals in there and stuff. But really, and Kenneth Bailey has done great work on this in Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He talks about how like an inn was really more of like a family room. Uh, or our house, excuse me, the, the the manger scene is really more of a family room mm-hmm. of what's happening. So the idea is not that Jesus and Mary got to Bethlehem the night that she was having the baby. It's clear from the narrative they were there for some days as, as the days had transpired. So the days had gone on. And so they show up and jo- John, uh, you know, uh, Joseph and Mary, I said, I said John and Mary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Peter, Joseph, Peter, Paul and Mary. Peter, Paul and Mary were looking around for a room. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Joseph and Mary are uh, looking probably for some family to take them in. Keep in mind, this is Joseph's hometown. Right. They're also of the lineage of David. Kind of a big deal. Okay. So it would have been brought, it would have brought great shame on any home to turn them away. So they're probably looking for family that they have, and they probably have a lot of family in this city, and they're looking for who has an open guest room. And as they keep going around, they're like, well, nobody has an open guest room. So where are they going to stay? Well, you can, you can get it right over here with where the animals stay, which a lot of times was indoors. And why were they indoors? Because they needed to keep the temperature of the house warm. And so the scene that we have of G, J, uh, you know Joseph and Mary being outside in a barn, uh, or like they were showing up to bed and breakfasts and taverns across Bethlehem, knocking on the door, and they're like, no vacancy here. That's not happening, right? They're not getting turned away from all these places. They're just saying, hey, there's no guest rooms open. So you can stay in the family room. Like They're laying out the futon for these people, right? Kyle, you're not invited to my Christmas party. I'm sorry. <laughs> you are super not fun. I'm I'm sorry, but when, but when you actually begin to look at it, it's just like, well, okay, we've read into these accounts something for that. And my problem with it isn't that, like, that's, you know, a bad story or whatever. Part of my problem is it's just like, that's just not what the text says. The other part of it is it betrays that we feel like we've got to make this story more special. More special. Mm-hmm. And that's, we do it with the star. We do it with the magicians. We get these three magi and we name them. It's like, hold on. The Son of God is entering the world. Do, do we need to that like... That wasn't big enough for you? No, no, no. We need more fireworks than God in human flesh. I just, I've never understood that. It's the biggest thing that's happened. It's the hinge point of all of human history. And we're like, okay, yeah, I, that's cool. Tell me about the, tell me about what animals were in there. Is there a donkey in there? Is there a camel? Is the Middle East? There could have been a camel in there. I'm like, why does it matter if a camel was there? Why? When my kids were little, um, we were at a Christmas Eve service at a church I will not mention the name of, and they did a whole reading from a book about a kind oxen, uh, ox, I guess is the singular of that. Boxing. And And his, it was like the the the, the story from his, his eyes. And um, one of my <laughs> children who had adopted maybe a tiny sliver of cynicism, I don't know where that came from, turned to me at the end of the service and said, Mom, I just really want to ask kind ox into my heart. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's revisit the text. <laughs> right. So when we do look at the text, okay, so let's assume that somebody somebody right now is going like, okay, oh I, get I get it. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you've convinced me that maybe I've built something up here. But what what is actually going on? I think particularly something that comes to mind for me is looking at Matthew chapter 1, I see this quote from Isaiah 7. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, I've heard this a dozen times teaching through this passage. Why weren't they all looking for a virgin birth? Weren't the Jews experts on the Old Testament? Weren't they reading it backwards and forwards and many of them have it memorized? Weren't the voice of the prophets ringing out across the gospel accounts? Why weren't they looking for a virgin? And when Mary showed up and said, hey, listen, I'm a virgin and I'm having this baby. Why didn't they just go? There's the Messiah. Case closed. That's it. There's no crucifixion. There's no resurrection. None of that stuff. It's just here he is. He's the king. Well, I'll take the second part of that, and then I'm probably going to punt the first part back to JT. But I would say that when Mary says, hey, I'm a virgin, this is it, um, her credibility is not going to be high Mm -hmm. in this culture. It's amazing and speaks a lot about Joseph. Uh, It's amazing that Joseph listen to her. Well, he needed an angel to come confirm what she said, in fairness. But (laughs) but yeah, I mean, there's no reason to, to believe her. Right. Mm. I mean, they're not looking for it in the first place. And, you know, the the prophecy in Isaiah had an original fulfillment. And so it's possible that they did not see a layer to that. Um, 
JT, you got yeah, anything I mean, on Isaiah? Uh, a little bit. So, I mean, I think, I, yeah, I would agree with everything you, you said there. I think part of this is, too, is some of the, the technical language that they would have been uh, working with that we don't have some, uh, you know, hindsights, uh, you know, 50, uh, 20, 20, 50, 50. <laughs> 50, 50. 50. No, That's incredible. So. <laughs> um, is, is they weren't necessarily, so this is not a denial of virgin birth. The virgin birth happened. This was an immaculate conception. Well, so just to be clear, you're about to deny the virgin birth. Yeah, I'm about to deny the virgin birth. Yeah, but the, the terminology that was used in Isaiah might not have been used the exact same way as actually right. the way we're using it in the gospel right. accounts of an immaculate, miraculous conception and, and then subsequent birth. And so they would not perhaps have been looking for that because if, they, I mean, anybody who read Isaiah there would have been like, oh my gosh, right. you're telling me. So uh, that is what happened, but that might not have been the way they were reading the text in Isaiah. Right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Mary, Jen. So there are probably per capita across the Bible, not as many really strong accounts of women as there are of men. And so when we do run across an account of this woman who takes on all of this risk, all of this sacrifice is probably maligned, mocked, suspected. Mm-hmm. We, pro- we need to spend a moment and just acknowledge the fact that what we're seeing is something that is kind of unique uh, throughout the story of scripture. We don't get as many of those stories. So what are maybe some of the unique ways that Matthew tells her story? Well, I, I would say that there's a strong connection between the way that Mary is presented um, and the way that Eve was presented yeah, back great. in Genesis chapter three. And uh, without going, you know, all Catholic on you, I do think that as Protestants, we have probably moved too far away from being willing to examine what in my mind is a clear literary parallel, mm-hmm. right? And so you see Mary's immediate uh, obedience and submission to the will of God when when the angel tells her what's going to happen. Um, she then... Um, joyfully submits to this, sees it as a privilege, you know, and she is the answer to the curse. She is the one through whom the, the, the seed comes that will crush the head of the serpent. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, we just studied Genesis this last year in the, in the Bible class and, and, and Eve seems to think as she bears Cain, I mean, even his name, here he is, you know, right. that, that she's given birth to the Savior. And so all yeah. of this long await, and she's given birth to a murderer, right? And right. so then, you know, all of these these years of waiting and waiting and thinking, is this the one? Is this the one? And, and in Mary, we see that come full circle. So she's a very important um, redemption picture, redemption of the story of Eve. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. 
As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Yeah, I would argue. Right. And I think the uh, that's such a wonderful point about some of the literary connections that are happening in Matthew one and two. I think another one of those that just jumps out, particularly in Matthew chapter two, is the flight to Egypt and the connection that Matthew makes between Christ and Moses and Israel. So in some ways, Matthew is kind of deliberately, like he's showing you some things about the narrative of Jesus and he's kind of like winking at you. Like, hey, do you see what I did there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, do you remember yeah. that whole thing about Moses and Israel, which his whole audience would absolutely remember. The Exodus was arguably the most formative the defining, thing yeah. in the history of Israel. So when we look in chapter two and uh, we see this flight to Egypt and it says, Matthew's quoting Hosea, you know, out of Egypt, I've called my son. And then we see Herod killing the children. We, we're seeing these connections to the Exodus event. You know, we know Jesus is accomplishing a greater Exodus. He tells us that in mm-hmm. the gospels mm-hmm. and the birth narrative retells Israel's prior Exodus from Egypt. Jesus goes back in Egypt and he's brought forth through what? Through the blood of innocent lives, just like Moses, just like Israel. Right, And so I think that's one of the beautiful ways that when we read the gospel accounts, the texturedness of the gospel accounts, and this is something you're going to hear us say a hundred times over the course of this year talking through Matthew, the gospel accounts are richly textured with the history of Israel. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the history of uh, uh, what God has done, particularly through the Old Testament or in the, in the scope of the Old Testament. And if we're unaware of some of those things, if we haven't really considered them, we're going to miss all of these resonances and echoes in the gospel accounts. Yeah, for maybe somebody who's thinking about that for the first time, let me just give you a piece of encouragement. I can't tell you how many times I read the Gospels without seeing any of that, but yet the Lord still used them deeply in my right. life to encourage me in my faith. And to, and so when, we think, when we're thinking about some of the technical stuff that we're talking about, like fulfillment themes out of the Old Testament that Matthew's making an apology saying, this is the new and better Israel with a new and better uh, Exodus, and he got us saving his people through this person. Um, the Lord is going to use scripture in your life over the long haul to let you see more depth over the course of your life. You might not, you don't need to see everything the first time the Lord's going to be continually showing and, and teaching you. And so, and so if you're, if you're hearing some of this stuff, you're like, Oh my gosh, I've never seen that before. I've never read the Bible the right way. That's not what we're saying. You can read the Bible very faithfully and just say, Oh my gosh, Matthew's telling me the savior has come. That's absolutely what Matthew's telling you. But yet there's so much that you can never be a, like you never stop studying the Bible. It just keeps growing in its meaning and significance. In the word you use, kind of the echoes and shadows and resonances of the Old Testament. I had a professor in seminary say, um, <clears throat> he said, I love the New Testament. It reminds me so much of the Old. <laughs> it's kind of a, 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 an interesting way to conceive of it, right? Because right. you would think that it's it's doing something different. But the, these authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the Gospels, or Paul and his epistles, you name the New Testament author, they were just so ingrained in the story of Israel that it had shaped their imagination 
imaginations as authors that they can't help but tell the story of Jesus in the Gospels without doing it within kind of the life and imagination of the people of Israel. Yeah. Well, and we're not that ingrained. I mean, let's just say it, right? right? Like, let's it's be so, honest it be about hard. it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's that that's why uh, I like to tell people to think about their time in the scriptures as a savings account, right? Like you're mm. putting in your faithful deposits rather than these one-off 10 minute a day things, you know, put in these faithful deposits across years and trust that the Lord is going to yield a multiplicative yield on these things and and, and that he, he does not shame the person who just opened their account for having a small balance. Like the point is that you keep putting in those deposits and he yields the return. That's good. It's really rich. JT, talk to us a little bit about the Son of God as a baby. Because when I think about the birth narrative of Jesus, here, here is the Son of God being carried by his mother and father to Egypt. I mean, like, okay, <laughs> right. so like they're carrying him. I have a nine-month-old at the house right now. Uh, it is a little bit hard for me to conceive of the Son of God as a baby. Every time I think about this question, I think of, gosh, what's that movie? It's the it's the Ricky Bobby, NASCAR. Oh, you know Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights. I'm ashamed that I know the name. So, of... I, I don't know the name. I've never seen that before. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, he prays to baby Jesus. Uh, <laughs> just as a really funny scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that just blew my mind the first time I considered it is Jesus, uh, as the incarnate son of God, doesn't somehow like... Uh, take on more godness over the course of his life. Right. Like in the womb, you have the maker of the universe holding the stars in their place. Not only just holding them there, but speaking them into existence by the word of his power. Or Athanasius, one of my favorite early church theologians on a book on the incarnation, uh, says something similar where he says, as he's nursing from his mother's breasts, he's holding the stars in their place. And so you have this incredible picture of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Like he was fully human. It wasn't that he just appeared to be human or was kind of like a human or looked human, but he had real human needs where he needed to eat. He cried, he slept, he he would get tired. And so as a baby, I mean, I have an eight week old at home. I'm very familiar right now in this moment of what it's like to have a, a baby in the But house. not as familiar as your wife is. Not as familiar as my wife. She is very familiar. God bless her, right? Uh, while at the same time, he is God in flesh. Like he, is, he is the one who is, is giving his mom breath through his divine nature, mm-hmm. but yet you have him existing in this one person. If your mind is being, being kind of blown by that concept right now, that's exactly what the Bible's intending to have happen, that this man or this baby, Jesus of Nazareth, is fully God, fully man, come to be with his people and to save them from their sins. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I feel like we need that like air horn that plays in rap songs, you know, um, like the hype man comes out. Cause I'm just like, that is just, I mean, we've taught on this. We've taught on this. We've read on this. I've been in classes where we talked about this. It's still I've written papers on it. Yeah. And just hearing you talk about it, I'm just thinking, okay, well, I guess we just have to pray for, you know, the people listening and just yeah. go back to our prayer closets and just. Yeah. And I think the primary instinct here isn't just like, like my goal in saying that or Athanasius or I think the Bible saying that is not to get you just to think harder about it. It's to incite worship. worship. Yeah. Like this ought to incite affection and adoration and love of this God who has accomplished this on your behalf. 
so can we tease this out a little bit? I know that when we get to the spring, we'll probably talk about Christology on an episode. If if you're still around, I know you're going to want to hear that. <laughs> if I'm still around, whoa. Wait, which of us really are you referring to? Is, do you know something I don't know? No, I'm just saying that. Oh, you, know, you meant like the rapture. I was talking about our secret plan. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You know, oh, man. Um, yeah, a coup. Um, <laughs> a cool coup. Um, so when we think about uh, two natures, one person, yeah. how, does that help us at all? think through this dynamic of the son of God nursing at his mother's breast and holding the stars in their place? Yeah. So we'll definitely, I mean, gosh, we have just a few minutes here. We can't get into a full kind of blown Christology conversation, but those, that terminology that you just used is very important Two natures, one person. Uh, Anselm writes a book, why the God man. And so why is it important that Jesus be fully God and fully man? I'll try to do this in 30 seconds. It's important that he be fully man because it'd be important that man be the one who's obedient to God's will and to God's mm-hmm. law and be the one who is the, he is the new Adam, right? It's not just God who accomplishes this uh, on, on his own. It must be accomplished through a human and it is accomplished through the human Jesus of Nazareth, but it also must be God who accomplishes this. As you think of, I mean, you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, I'll be the one who, who is the one who accomplishes this on your behalf. Even when you're disobedient to the covenant, I will do it. And so it's important that it not be one man and or God alone, but it, it is actually the same person. So two natures, one person. That was real good, JT. I know, you got that down. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I had it written down. I was just reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounded good. Yeah. Um, when we, when we're, let's go back. I want to kind of land the plane here, going back to the text here in Matthew chapter one. When it, and when Matthew quotes Isaiah seven, and uh, Micah 5, and he talks about, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That, that name is very important. It means God with us, right? That's what's going on there, God with us. And I think one of the mega themes of the Bible, and particularly of the Old Testament, is the presence of God. Mm-hmm. So I would love to just spend a few moments kind of concluding our time talking about the birth narrative, thinking about that name, Emmanuel. How was the birth of Christ connected to an Old Testament theology of God's presence with his people? How does it, how does that play out across the scope of scripture? Yeah, I think it may be, be fun to do this together. I don't know anyone, any one of us could do this wholly, completely by ourselves, but I've heard it said before that the story of the Bible is the story of Emmanuel, the right. story of God with us. And this is the, the probably the primary theme, or at least one of the primary themes running from Genesis to Revelation. So in mm-hmm. Genesis 1 and 2, you have God with his people living amongst them in the garden, experiencing joy and fellowship and communion. And then perhaps the, the greatest kind of fissure or fracture of all time is exile that Adam mm-hmm. and Eve are sent out and expelled from God's presence. But part of the gospel is that God says, I will come to rescue you so that we might experience each other's presence forever. And then you have the story of the Old Testament is this over and over and over and over. We're not going to hit every point, but you think of the tabernacle, yep. God coming to dwell with his people. And then the, the greater fulfillment of that is uh, the temple. So you have the tabernacle and then the temple. And then what is the first thing that Jesus does? One of the first things he does in his ministry, but go to the temple proclaiming himself to be Emmanuel. He is the one who is with us. And then he ascends to the right hand of the father after his resurrection. And what happens? He sends the Holy Spirit, God with us, Emmanuel. And what does Second uh, Corinthians 6 say? You are now God's temple. Mm-hmm. You are the God with us or the God with his people or God is with you as you go out into the world to, as Jen said, as kind of we were starting the podcast, to proclaim this good news to all people in the great commandment or great commission. Right. 
Yeah, and in First Corinthians, and, and, and then in Second Corinthians, again, Paul is using a, a plural sense of this, you are the temple of God. He says, we are God's temple. And so when we think about God with us, don't forget the us part. Like I oh, think yeah. that, you yeah. know, oftentimes we get to a sense of, oh, God is with me and I want him to be with me and whatever my current circumstances. He totally is. That's a really important thing for us to keep in view. But these these mentions here are, are telling us even a, a bigger thing that, that that God is with his people, with his church. Yes, and that's always been the case. It's always been the case, God drawing near to his people. I think of uh, John uh, 1 verse 14, right, which mm-hmm. is a great verse. And John does such a great job of helping bring some of the, what Matthew and Mark and Luke construe as kind of a narrative dynamic in their gospel accounts. John does a little bit, uh, he's a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more didactic in his approach to the coming of Jesus. And he says in John 1 14, and many of you know this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. That sense of he's tabernacling mm-hmm. among us. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at the gospel accounts, we not only get to see the birth of Jesus, but when we look at all of them together, Matthew's mention of Emmanuel and Jesus' coming, right? And the kind of way that he's retelling the story of Israel, where the presence of God is a huge factor in God drawing them out of Egypt and drawing them what? Into his presence, yeah. right? Into this land that he's going to give them, where the temple would be constructed. And here comes Jesus after years and years of there being this distance between God's people and God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus enters in to history, right? The Son of God enters in uh, and takes on human flesh and tabernacles among the people, dwells with them. And this is just a beautiful image of how that birth connects to well, and maybe as we're thinking, I mean, gosh, what an incredible way to describe it. But I think the important thing then to remember is, as, as we've just highlighted, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten of these movements in Scripture of God moving towards his people, him mm-hmm. coming to us, is the move isn't the opposite. God isn't isn't uh, expecting us to come to him in the state, sometimes the way we use that language, but rather the movement in Scripture is Emmanuel, God with us, that Christ came and that the hope of the gospel is that God is making his tabernacle, his home among us on this earth, that it's not that we're somehow radically ripped out of this world into a different world with God, but that the movement of the Bible is God coming to save us. Yeah. We've seen the genealogy of Jesus, that it's a lot more interesting than you might imagine. We've looked at the birth narrative of Jesus and we've tried to strip away some of the kind of accretions and things that have built up on top of that story. And we've looked at the text today. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we are going to be discussing the doctrine of creation. We're going to be talking about why maybe the most important thing in our doctrine of creation isn't the length of days or the amount of days, but some other things altogether different. Prepare to get mad at us. See you next time. Grace and peace.